its Innovation Station initiative, the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues at the U.S. Department of State is amplifying women and girls developing solutions to global challenges and helping them connect with new communities that could benefit from their work. Today, you'll meet a few of those innovators as they explain their game-changing, translatable initiatives in their own words. Welcome to SGWE's Innovation Station. The Chesapeake Bay watershed is home to some of the most famous museums in the world, including several museums of the Smithsonian Institution, as well as various maritime museums preserving and celebrating the Bay's history, environment, and culture. As environmental challenges continue to threaten this and other communities, the importance of museums in providing educational and cultural enrichment and incubating solutions cannot be overstated. Museums face the consistent challenge of how to maximize accessibility and relevance to the audiences that they serve. In the United States, roughly 90% of museum attendees are white. Across 18 major American museums, 85% of represented artists were white and 87% were men. A lack of inclusion reflected in both the collections and stories shared by museums, as well as amongst attendees themselves, signals a need for action. Plus, over the past two decades, museums have seen a large shift in youth attendance, with an estimated 15% increase in youth participation since 2017. As such, museums have the opportunity to reach beyond the field of preservation into the realms of conservation and sustainability, both of which are really resonating with younger generations seeking to tackle environmental challenges. But because museums globally act as educational centers for young and old, they take on the added responsibility of ensuring that the art, the history, and the programs that they provide include the voices of women and girls, people of color, indigenous communities, members of the LGBTQI plus community, and other marginalized voices whose stories are often overlooked, including in the context of climate change and its impacts. So in this conversation, we will speak with two women pushing the envelope in museum innovation and diving headfirst into the intersection of museums, communities, and the environment. Please join me in welcoming our panelists, Julie Decker, Director and CEO of the Anchorage Museum, and Sarah Mullins, CEO of Micro. Thank you both so much for joining us. And Julie, um, I'm going to start with you here today. Would you mind giving us a brief overview of your work at the Anchorage Museum? Hi, thanks for having me, Aubrey. And it's great to be part of a discussion with Sarah and um, feel very lucky to have Miranda Massey as a colleague. Um, I'm in Alaska, Anchorage, Alaska right now. I can see climate change out my window. Winter is not what it used to be in a place like ours. Um, Miranda mentioned we've been talking about uh, climate change for a long time here at the Anchorage Museum, and that's because uh, in the north, climate change has been visceral for a very long time. It is changing lifeways, foodways, um, people's homes. We see immigration, relocation um, because of climate change. Uh, we see our vulnerabilities. Um, we have a three-day food supply that can come to us by a barge here in Anchorage. So um, there's a vulnerability that we can't escape and also a resilience and a strength that I think can be a lesson um, to many other places. Um, we think of our colleagues as part of the Circumpolar North for the most part, which is a uh, cross-border, cross-nation uh, community and region. Uh, working often with Scandinavia and Canada, uh, places like Greenland. 
that have deep indigeneity, um, but also deep history uh, with colonization. Uh, as a museum, um, we've long moved away from this idea that we are simply preservers of the past, that we keep objects. Um, instead, we think we have a commitment to community um, that is our strongest role and that what the community needs are rich uh, and relevant discussions about uh, what communities are facing today, um, but also rich and meaningful discussions about how we can prepare for, anticipate, describe, uh, and imagine the future um, in the best possible ways and with the best uh, kind of realities for everyone. Um, also, as a museum, um, I think we think of ourselves less as an exhibition space and an institution that organizes exhibitions and more of a conversation space, a space for programs, a space for people, a space to think about our place and our planet. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Julie. And Sarah, welcome to you as well. I'm going to ask you to get us started with a short introduction of your work at Micro. Absolutely. Um, thanks, Aubrey. It is an honor to be here uh, with these very brilliant uh, women who are, are working on these issues. Um, so I am the CEO of Micro, and at Micro, our mission is to redistribute access to cultural resources by deploying a fleet of six-foot-tall museums into the spaces of everyday life, so public libraries, municipal buildings, and hospital waiting rooms. The idea here is to bring museum experiences to those people and communities that have historically been exclu excluded from museum going experiences. And to date, uh, by virtue of the communities that have hosted our installations, about 90% of micro museum visitors are people of color, which in contrast to the statistics that you shared earlier, Aubrey, is something that we're really proud of. Uh, our team of creatives and design engineers and storytellers um, are working really hard to build a world where museums can both reckon with the urgent social issues of our time and that the resulting museum experiences uh, are available to everyone. And so uh, one thing we know is that even in the face of some of the statistics um, that are quite scary about museums, uh, an American Alliance of Museums study from 2021 found museums were among the most trusted public institutions, um, even as other institutions like media and universities uh, face this growing crisis of trust. And so with this trust, it's become even more important for museums to support communities uh, in interpretation, engagement, and reckoning with the urgent social issues of our time. So to this end, we're working on two major initiatives in 2023. Um, the first is a micro climate museum. So we're looking to partner with one or more larger museums. Uh, some of these partnerships are close to being solidified. I was hoping I could make an announcement today, but not quite there. Um, but we want to really bring a story of climate optimism and planet saving innovation into these spaces of everyday life. Um, then we're also working with the IMLS to build a missing disinformation museum. And what's really special about this project is that in four communities across the United States, Micro will partner with a traditional brick and mortar museum to build community curated micro kiosks and tour them in public spaces within the community. So this question of community curation is something that we're really excited about. Um, so in addition to this question of who has access to museums, we know that we must also, in partnership with traditional museums, address this question of who gets to decide what is canonized in museums and, and what um, 
define what museums stand for and protect. So the four museums will reflect the voices of community stakeholders in ways that feel super hyper-local and super relevant. Thank you so much, Sarah. We have so much to dive in with both of you. Um, so I'm going to jump right in with a sort of broad overarching question for you, Julie, to get us started. Based on your work and experiences, and like you said, you've been thinking about this and your institution has been thinking about this for a long time. What is the role of museums in combating the climate crisis? I think some of it's been touched on already. I mean, museums have a platform, um, sometimes flawed, but uh, a platform nonetheless that um, engages diverse audiences, diverse ages, uh, reaches a lot of people, and has a uh, a trust factor that um, we should treat gently and uh, hold dearly. Um, I think uh, Miranda mentioned collaboration and uh, community. Uh, those are two big C words for us. Um, I think we have focused a lot on building relationships with individuals in the community, artists, um, to think about organizations, other people working on climate. Um, I think it's this idea of the sum of us, um, that the museum is not uh, and shouldn't be the only voice on climate, but what we should be doing is highlighting the work that is being done in our communities around climate, the uh, issues, the experiences um, being faced by our community. Um, I think we should be a host, a convener. Um, these are places, big places, uh, that can really take the lead on how we have conversations, how we develop a language for our future, which um, is something I think we lack often. We don't know how to talk about the future. I think that's a role for museums to start to build a language for communities around the future. Um, and to be spaces. Um, a lot of times, I think conversations about museums uh, are about the facility, our HVAC systems. These are large, sometimes dated facilities, and that's a really important conversation. Um, but really, it's our access to participants in this conversation uh, that I think defines our, uh, our role with the most potential. And I know that the Anchorage Museum has been thinking for many years about climate change in various contexts, ranging from, you know, coastal erosion to indigenous communities to to how climate is affecting urban areas, et cetera. Can can you talk a little bit about the different those different contexts in which you, you think of the climate crisis as a museum and, and how you take action in those various um, in those various settings? Sure. I mean, I think early on we made a decision not to start with the question. We weren't going to pose the question of is climate change real? We were going to start with the assumption um, that this is something people are experiencing, seeing in their communities, living. It's changing the way people were uh, thinking about their homes and um, the way they were uh, thinking about transportation, energy, logistics. Um, so we thought about how do we embed a conversation around climate, our planet, our place, in everything we do, um, from our building to the way we think about our collection, to how we uh, organize our staff, to our community partnerships, to our fundraising, um, but very much also to our exhibitions and programs so that we don't um, ever, we think, we hope, uh, ignore that this is a primary issue um, facing all of us, that we are seeking solutions, that we are seeking positive way forward, um, that, that we are seeking uh, ways to have conversations around the environment, but also environmental justice. Um, 
So with uh, with every exhibition, it's a lens through which uh, we make sure we're thinking, talking as we design exhibitions, we're thinking about materials, we're thinking about reuse. Um, I think probably what is non-traditional about our work is that it's uh, less about what's in our brick and mortar location, maybe in the spirit of micro. It's about how do we get out into communities? How do we do work on the streets? How do we think about public art in a new way? How do we partner with indigenous organizations on everything from indigenous place names to indigenous identity in our communities? How do we um, highlight indigenous knowledge, non-Western ways of thinking? Uh, how do we talk to um, uh, our legislators about uh, our narrative of place? Um, it's really thinking about language and life ways um, more than traditional museology, I think. Um, and maybe there's an opportunity later, but we also established um, a place called Seed Lab. So there's a building that wasn't being used across the street from the museum and we uh, renovated the space, um, keep it as kind of a classic non-museum space in terms of uh, access and presentation and the rules that typically govern museums and instead partner with communities to have conversations there about what do sustainable communities look like um, and what the, can they be if we work together um, towards tomorrow. Awesome. Thank you so much. I think there are a lot of nuggets of wisdom in that answer. So hopefully everyone can sit with that a little bit as well. So Sarah, I'm going to turn to you now um, and ask a little bit more about the nature of your micro museums, because I suspect this is a very new concept to a lot of our audience members today. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the topics your micro museums have tackled so far and, you know, how they've been received in communities? Yeah, so um, by way of topics, uh, this is our first museum uh, called the Smallest Mollusk Museum, and it is a natural history museum all about mollusks. Uh, so in many ways, uh, it already is a climate museum as it addresses the extinction of mollusks um, and poses the question of the sixth mass extinction. Uh, it also works to build empathy because mollusks are just about the strangest thing we can imagine, the thing that is the most different from us. They have brains in their arms, they're made of slime. Um, and so we're thinking about how do we build empathy with something so different from ourselves uh, in order to uh, really think about how we can build empathy uh, as we are addressing these uh, very large topics like climate. Uh, we're really proud that the Smallest Mollusk Museum was the first science museum in the Bronx. Um, so even in uh, a place like New York City, where we have this amazing wealth of cultural resources, um, those resources are not evenly distributed. And so we're, we were really excited to have, you know, a quite literally small part um, in, in helping to, to address some of those discrepancies. Uh, we also have the Museum of Perpetual Motion, uh, which is a physics and engineering museum, uh, again, with a bit of a climate lens in that it's uh, all about man's constant search for free energy and about um, the energy cycle and energy preservation. And then finally, during the pandemic, uh, alongside Johnson & Johnson, we developed the Museum of Care, which outlines the evolution of care throughout the human experience and celebrates frontline care workers through the lens of nurses, midwives, and community health workers around the world. Um, a couple other things that we're really proud of, uh, during a stretch of 2021, 
we had built a new museum mile in the Bronx where one could walk between three museums, so the smallest mollusk, the perpetual motion, and the Museum of Care, uh, installed in a public library, a public courts building, and a public hospital. So we made these experiences available in this community in the Bronx with one of the lowest high school graduation rates in the country. And this is in contrast to the traditional museum mile in Manhattan, uh, which is in a community with one of the highest rates of graduation and college attendance. So just speaks to the power of redistributing access to uh, the museum experience. Um, and then finally, we also have um, it's been on hold since the pandemic, but uh, we hope to one day revive what's called our micro explorers program. Uh, so it's a docent and job creation program uh, rooted primarily in the public library and the public hospital system. So we partnered with Bronx high schoolers to uh, be docents to the museum, and we saw an uptick in their interest in science as a result. So uh, it just really speaks to the power of having of you know having a specific asset that comes into a community and all of the great programming that can uh, accompany that asset as it as it comes into these spaces. Awesome. Um, we have some questions coming in from the audience and I want to get to them. However, before we do, Sarah, I do have a follow up question for you. You previewed earlier um, the the climate optimism themed micro museum that is in development now. What can you tell us about your goals for this project and are there specific messages uh, that that's going to try to send? Are there specific communities you're looking at deploying anything you can share at this stage of the project? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is so much amazing work already happening around climate, um, both within the, the museum sector, as we've seen, you know, with Julie and with the Climate Museum. Um, so at first, we were just thinking a lot about how and where the micro form factor in particular could have the biggest impact. And where we landed is that because our museums live in public spaces, we can reach this non self selecting incidental audience. So we're looking specifically to address those folks who might not seek out a, a climate experience uh, within a traditional museum and those folks who might be paralyzed by climate anxiety, which we know uh, is is on the rise. And so. We're centering the museum around climate optimism and focusing the narrative specifically on the innovations that are shaping the future of our planet. And so the narrative will be directed primarily to Gen Z um, to encourage the ways that they can help to shape the future of a planet that can support human life uh, as a mechanism for um, for combating this climate anxiety. And, you know, another Another big guiding principle um, as we built the museum is sort of back to my roots. So I'm originally from West Virginia and, you know, while my home has been ravaged by extractive industries and we see the results of the, the changing climate um, there, perhaps more than uh, many other places, there's a lot of fear about moving away from fossil fuels. And so one of the guiding principles for us as we've built this museum is that we could put it in an installation in my hometown of Hurricane, West Virginia, and then it won't get tarred and feathered and thrown in the Canal River. I love that perspective. Thank you so much for sharing. Now, Julie, I'm going to I'm going to turn back to you now. I think one of the really interesting things about this particular conversation is we can talk about the role of museums at very different scales and how there are many different um, avenues for partnership, whether they be at the at the local level or potentially even at an international level. And so, Julie, 
I know that the Anchorage Museum has developed some partnerships with other museums in northern region countries. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about those partnerships and why that's important and what they hope to accomplish. Um, sure. I mean, I think uh, when you find your region, uh, there's a way to start from um, start from 100 instead of zero on conversations because people understand uh, what it's like living in these spaces um, in terms of their histories, in terms of their indigeneity, in terms of their innovation. Um, so working with our northern neighbors has been uh, really compelling because we can start um, from that place of instant understanding um, of what it means to be on a perceived periphery. Um, really interested in the idea that a lot of the innovation is happening outside of major urban centers, outside the traditional spaces that we consider um, knowledge centers or economic centers, that um, in these so-called peripheral places, there's um, people are really close to the ground, including museums working closely with communities, um, so that you're seeing, hearing, um, listening in a different way, um, a way that's, I think, um, very connected and a little more instantaneous. Um, we're not years away from having conversations or exhibitions. We're working with communities um, all of the time um, and seeing what solutions work and which ones uh, fail. Um, we're working with a museum in Greenland. We have uh, lovely partners in northern Norway. Um, we have had exchanges, conversation exchanges with Siberia. Uh, we have MOUs with Canadian museums. Um, this is the northern region that's facing um, not just coastal erosion and uh, a new colonization of tourism, um, people going to see these, the last of the wilderness. Um, uh, places that are experiencing climate change um, at a fast degree are also seeing an increase in tourism. Um, you see new uh, cruise ships coming into these northern places. Um, but also there's talk of these becoming places of mass migration in the future and in really a short-term future. I think it was Time Magazine last summer had an article saying that uh, Kodiak Island um, of Alaska would be the most uh, climate-friendly place um, within our lifetimes, um, but with the temperatures of Florida, that there may be millions of people moving north to places like Alaska where there isn't the infrastructure, where um, there are indigenous lifeways that would be dramatically impacted um, by building that infrastructure for a mass migration. So um, these are real issues. Um, it's important to talk about them with uh, our, our region, um, to think about what it means to be in a strategic place always. Um, we're economically strategic in terms of our history with fossil fuels. When you think about our proximity to Russia and Asia, there's a political urgency in talking about the Arctic. Um, but we've, what we find most effective is to talk about every, people's everyday lives. So how do they get to work? How do they bring their children to school? What do they eat? How do we grow food here in a place that isn't always agriculturally friendly? Um, what does it mean to ship things here? What does it mean to listen to the landscape? Um, how can indigenous uh, knowledge, um, uh, millions of years, thousands of years of resilience, what can it teach us and how do we learn to listen um, to that expertise? Um, we talk a lot about consumption, um, things that people can relate to. I think that for us, that's become the best way to have these conversations about 
um, our own lives, what we're seeing with our own eyes, what we know our neighbors are experiencing. Um, and then I think change is more tangible to people. Um, and so is the idea of productive and positive um, change. Thank you so much, Julie. Um, I'm going to turn back to Sarah now. And before I do so, folks who have messaged me in the chat box wanting to inquire about specific questions about how to get micro museums into their communities, I have taken note of those requests and I will put you in contact with Sarah after this event. Um, so in the meantime, uh, Sarah, I do have an audience question for you. It is a bit of a two-parter. The first part is how does micro track the demographic of visitors to their fleets? And the second half of that is is, do individuals from minority backgrounds contribute to the development of the fleets? Great questions. Um, so uh, measurement is something that we're always looking to innovate. Right now we use uh, what I call a very lo-fi option, which is in many of our installations, we will pay someone to sit for eight hours um, and uh, track essentially the presumed demographics of the folks. Um, so it's it's a low tech way, uh, but we're always thinking, I, I come from a tech background previously, and so we're always thinking about user privacy. Um, so we're trying to find that, that nice line between those two things. Um, because we're also in public spaces like public libraries, public hospitals, public courts, uh, oftentimes those institutions already have a lot of demographic data about their visitors. And so, because they have that data, they're um, happy to share with us sort of what the traffic flow to the museum itself looks like. And then from there, we can infer what uh, the demographics of the visitors, the visitorship looks like. Um, in terms of the contributions to the existing museums, um, we have had, so we, we have a small team of full-time folks, and then we work with a lot of um, creatives, scientists, researchers, fact checkers, copywriters, um, and we try whenever possible to get um, folks from various backgrounds, you know, both, you know, racially, class-wise, gender-wise, um, rural versus urban. We, we try to think a lot about keeping those teams very balanced um, in order to make that, um, that dialogue as rich as possible and representative as possible uh, for the various communities that we're serving. Um, but we can do it, we can absolutely do a better job of this. And this is what we're really excited about our community curation and this project with the IMLS is um, we're trying to get ourselves out of the way as much as possible and to really become a form factor and to become a space for this type of engagement as opposed to being the ones that are directing it, which has been historically the case. Thank you. Okay, I have one more specific question for each of you, and then we'll start wrapping up with our overarching question to close out the discussion. So, Julie, I know that speaking, you know, speaking of Sarah and the conversation about demographics, Anchorage Museum has developed and continues to develop projects that focus on the art and the experiences of women and girls, including indigenous women and girls. So can you talk a little bit about the, the overarching vision for these sorts of projects and why this has been important to your institution particularly? Uh, yes, we're committed to um, the some of us um, that women have strong voices in Alaska. Um, you can see that in our elected officials. You can see that in leadership in many organizations. Um, when you look across the nonprofit sector, um, I give a shout out to all the women of Alaska that are doing remarkable work and the girls who will who are already taking the lead. Um, we have a program called Teen Climate Communicators. 
Um, so working with youth and teens who inspire us rather than the other way around, who care about these issues, um, who lead us forward. Um, I think indigenous artists of Alaska um, have been creating uh, activism and action around climate, around environment, around um, indigeneity. Um, I, uh, we do believe that contemporary artists um, can help change the conversation, can help raise awareness um, and education and new ways, create a new dialogue of, around some of these intractable issues. Um, and many of those um, are women, um, filmmakers, writers. Uh, we don't just focus on visual arts or one discipline. Um, we do believe in listening to communities that it's not our curatorial voice uh, that should be put forward, but rather um, how do we listen? How do we reflect? How can we mirror? Um, how do we think about representation uh, differently in museums? Uh, it's an important conversation for us to have with the museum field um, and with our communities, um, and we remain committed to um, change and progress. Thanks, Julie. And Sarah, my last specific question for you is one that I think will speak to one of the other audience notes that I have in the chat box here. Um, I know that Micro is in the early stages of developing a micro museum template of sorts um, that can be adapted by museums across the country or by communities across the country. Can you tell us just a little bit what are appetites about this project and what you hope to achieve with it? Yeah, so um, we get requests all the time from um, museums, from individuals who, you know, are extremely passionate about a specific idea and they want to build a micro museum. Unfortunately, because we have a small team, uh, we cannot service all the, the requests that we get, which is, you know, from a museum of thermodynamics uh, to the museum of dog poop. This is a real request. <laughs> so there's, we, we really, things, things really run the gamut. And so our dream is to open source um, both our technology for building as well as a technology for developing um, what could go into the museum. So what could go into the content. So the appetite is enormous, um, again, both with individuals and existing cultural institutions. Uh, we see the IMLS project that we're working on as sort of a first step into this. So the way that that will work from a tactical perspective is um, within the four communities that we're developing these um, Museum of Mis and Disinformation, we're developing a template first, and then the communities will then uh, work across that template. So. Um, we're really excited about the idea. Uh, we think we're gonna learn a lot from the IMLS project that will then uh, hopefully be able to, you know, in a decade or so <laughs> result in uh, something where someone could go in, uh, put their content into a micro museum, hit print, it sends to, you know, a local maker space or a local fabrication shop, and then you're sort of left with a micro museum. That's, that's kind of the, the vision of the pipeline, um, but we're, we're pretty far away from that, to be totally honest at this moment. Thanks, Sarah. I, I appreciate the vision for sure. Um, so as we begin wrapping up this conversation, this first conversation of three today, I wanted to leave with one 
Uh, final question for both of you to answer. Think of this as your, you know, 30 second parting thoughts. And that question is, what piece of advice would you give to audience members seeking to creatively engage um, their own audiences on different challenges, whether environmental or otherwise, in their own communities? So, Julie, I will turn to you first and then we'll get our final thoughts from Sarah. Uh, well, I think one thing we've learned is to know that if we pre-prescribe the solutions or the outcomes, they won't be as strong as if we follow momentum and follow conversations. So I would say start by listening, start by convening uh, people that care that are working on these challenges um, and figure out how you can help uh, lift up that work uh, with them. Um, we've been doing repair workshops um, at our seed lab, things where people come and they repair their, for us, it's the down jacket that gets a hole in it or their fishing boots or, you know, their everyday materials. And those be, have become incredible spaces for sharing uh, for women, for um, uh, people to come together and, and make an act, um, but also meet new people. And I think um, the more we can be cross-sector in these conversations, the more we can get out of our uh, our usual um, partners and listening places and more um, listening to uh, people that we may not have connected with before. Uh, I think that'll make our path forward clearer. Thank you so much, Julie. And Sarah, your piece of advice, final thoughts. I couldn't agree with you more, Julie. Um, I think for me, it's just all about bringing communities into the curation process wherever possible. So uh, the recognition that our job as museum professionals is to ensure that we're putting out in, that what we're putting out into the world and what we're uh, bringing people into reflects the voices of the people and the communities that we serve, uh, which is why I'm so inspired by this seed lab space that Julie shared um, and sort of creating these spaces for intentional connection and intentional community dialogue. Um, I think we shouldn't just be thinking about how to get people through the doors to view exhibits, um, as we've seen that Anchorage Museum seems to be way, way ahead of uh, most, most cultural institutions on this, which is really inspiring to see. Um, but we really need to be considering uh, sort of the points of view of all of our stakeholders, inc including the community in which we sit, um, sort of at every stage of exhibition and thinking about uh, what this question of exhibition really even means or, or what impact it's trying to have on the communities. This podcast is derived from audio recordings of SGOE's Innovation Station virtual event series. The views expressed in the preceding episode are those of the featured innovators and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, the U.S. Department of State, or the U.S. government. For more information on the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, its initiatives, and programs, please visit the State Department website at www.state.gov.